Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. For many, this past year, the pandemic has been a lost year. And for our kids and teens, the disruption to school life has had major impacts on both academic life and also took an emotional toll. In Hobbs, New Mexico, the high school there closed and sports were canceled, taking away activities that gave many meaning and provided social interaction. Cooper Davis was one such student who, despite his best efforts, felt lost without his normal routine and outlets, and the stress eventually overcame him. In the tiny town of Hobbs, there were three student-athlete suicides and six suicide attempts. The town is now looking at how to address these problems. For more on what the pandemic has cost some teenagers, we'll speak to Alec McGillis, reporter at ProPublica. Something I've been worried about really all year since the pandemic began, the effect that the shutdowns would have on young people. I actually wrote one big article that came out in September about the academic costs for kids. Um, and it focused on a boy in Baltimore, a 12-year-old boy who I've been mentoring and the terrible effects that the school shutdowns were having on him academically. But then I, I was also worrying about what was happening with older kids, teenagers, and just the broader effects, not just academic, but emotional and mental health-wise, and not just the loss of, of school, but also of sports and all the other activities that kids depend on to be out in the world, and just what the effect was of taking that all away. And I went to New Mexico because I heard about a you know, really kind of sad situation there, which did involve, as you, just, as you mentioned, the, the border, and such an incredibly stark demonstration there of how our elected officials' decisions matter for sort of shaping the lives of our young people. On, on the one side of the border in Texas, things have proceeded strikingly normally. School was open all the way up through high school, five days a week. They still had football games on Friday nights, and they certainly made some adjustments. You know, they had masks and contact tracing and all that, but they were trying to make it work. And then across the line in New Mexico, states led by a Democratic governor who put forward some of the most stringent requirements, limits in the whole country, both on schools and, and generally. And so you had there in the town of Hobbs, everything shut down, barely any kids going to school at all, just a few younger kids, all the sports shut down. And the kids were, the young people, they were really, really struggling with it. As we've kind of learned throughout the pandemic early on, nobody knew what was going on. So it seemed appropriate to shut everything down as things progressed. We learned that, you know, younger kids don't get really affected by the virus as much as older people as you get a little older and all that. And even when the limited studies that we have seen now, a lot of the community spread, a lot of spread of the virus isn't necessarily happening in the schools. It's happening outside of the schools, in the communities. And there's a lot at play. Concern for health of the students, concern for the health of teachers and administrators as well. So as you mentioned, in New Mexico, they had some pretty stringent closures and in Hobbs, New Mexico, there at the high school, you know, the kids really had to adjust. And, and you profiled a student. His name was Cooper Davis, a young kid, promising kid, played football. That was a big part of his life. Academics was a big part of his life. And that got taken away completely. And this is kind of where the story continues here. Things aren't always what they seem. And his mental health declined pretty rapidly, it seemed like. It did. I mean, if with him, it was a case of a kid who had been doing really, really well beforehand, doing well, very flourishing in sort of normal life, was got really good grades, was 
really promising quarterback, six foot four, had big dreams of going to playing football at Stanford, very well liked, a lot of friends, active in his church, very supportive family. And but he just felt like everything was being taken away. It was all the things he had aspired to, dreamed for, tried to achieve in were suddenly just kind of gone. And school was suddenly him just sitting in front of a laptop. They weren't even doing sort of synchronous learning via Zoom. They were just getting lessons that they were doing on their own on their computers. So he had virtually no contact with other students, even over the computer. The sports became all they were allowed to do were these sort of little weightlifting sessions in small groups, no real playing out in the field. And everything that was meaningful and purposeful in his life, everything that he was sort of striving toward was suddenly just gone. And it had a really terrible effect on him. He spoke about it openly. They had a big protest in October at the football field in the town where a bunch of the students got down the field and spoke to all the people in the stands about what a hard time they were having. And he spoke very eloquently about how much he was struggling with this disruption. Yeah, I have to focus on that a little bit more because reading through the article, I mean, that was one of the things that touched me the most. And kids a lot of times don't open up in the same way. Some are more expressive than others. And you're right, he did take that moment to kind of open up. And, you know, he said, hey, my name's Cooper. He says, I play sports and it's a big part of my life. He says, right now, without all of that, I feel really lost in life. That's kind of that moment where you really can stop and think, it's like, this is really affecting these kids. For adults, you might say, oh, you just can't play sports or, hey, you're just not at school, but it's very meaningful to them. And unfortunately for Cooper, things deteriorated. He ended up committing suicide. But in Hobbs in general, just in that area, it was even more pronounced than that. I mean, I think there was three other student athlete suicides and maybe some uh, six other suicide attempts. So it was a real thing. It was a small town and, and it affected the students there very much. They're, they've been reeling over this. They lost first an 11-year-old to suicide about six weeks into the school closures who was also very open with his parents about how, what a hard time he was having, missing his friends, missing school. And Cooper took his life in December. And then in October, they also lost an 18-year-old who had recently graduated from high school. This is all in a town of fewer than 40,000 people. What a lot of the adults there spoke with me about what the kids were going through had to do with the way that I mean, we have to think back as adults to what it was like to being a young person, being a teenager, and how you don't realize how much other people are going through the same things you are. Often you feel very alone in what you're going through. You lack that perspective, and you also lack a perspective about time. For a lot of us, the fact that we'll have had roughly a year of things being kind of closed down has been no fun and difficult, but something you can kind of, you can see the end of it. But for young people, this is your youth. Like, you're not going to get another junior year. And that's how he felt. This was his junior year. This was the year that he was going to be out in the field, hopefully getting recruited by scouts, putting up some great videos for the scouts, taking all his AP classes, getting good grades. And suddenly that was all just gone. And he was not going to get another junior year. We talk a lot about uh, these psychological stressors on the kids. And uh, some of the mental health experts that you spoke to painted in a couple of different terms. There's stressors that make your life unpleasant, intolerable. And then there's stressors that take good things away. And in that sense, COVID-19, the pandemic, the closures, right, the response to all of this, that's one of those things that took good things away. As you mentioned, it it took the pleasures of achievements in sports and academics. It took the pleasures of just socializing with your friends. It took those things away. And, And this is where it gets really tricky and where there is cause for concern for our young kids because this is how it could affect them. It's the, I guess, the the scientific word for it is anhedonia. It's the absence of of pleasure. It's all the things that sustain you that are are simply simply removed. So where does the town move now in response to all of this? 
the vaccines are rolling out. Uh, we're getting good guidelines from the CDC about being fully vaccinated and being to hang out and uh, without masks and social distancing and things are starting to open up. You know, what does the town do now? They're now just really trying to figure out what they can do for their young people. Really think they have a real problem on their hands. One of the most poignant things I saw was a um, session where a lot of kids were, this is after Cooper's death, they brought a lot of kids together, sort of early teen kids, for a workout session in a strip mall parking lot just to get the kids together with each other. They're doing kind of kickboxing exercises with um, some, you know, karate instructors. And it was just this incredibly poignant scene, these like 13, 14-year-old kids spaced out with masks on doing kickboxing in a strip mall parking lot, all just trying to get them together with each other. The state has finally recently loosened the restrictions and let some kids, let kids back in school for a couple days a week. And then just actually just a couple hours after my article went up, they announced that they were going to have a broader reopening. It's really kind of striking how suddenly New Mexico has reversed course. They've gone from being one of the most shut down states in the country to now opening more rapidly than some other states. It certainly gets a sense that they realize just how difficult this has gotten for a lot of their young people. Yeah, I mean, we're going to be looking at this pandemic and its effects for many, many years to come on a number of different aspects. Mental health, as we've been talking about, just academics for the kids, at the economy, in, in a ton of different ways. And uh, as you mentioned in the article, it, it is kind of emblematic of a lost year for a lot of people. And this is just one story of what the pandemic has cost to one town and some of our teenagers. So it's a very in-depth piece. I suggest everybody go out and check it out. There's a lot of other details we were not able to get into right now. But Alec McGillis, reporter at ProPublica and author of the new book, Fulfillment, Winning and Losing in a One-Click America. Thank you very much for joining us. Well, thank you. Finally, for this week, we're talking a lot about vaccines. We're ramping up. Joe Biden has said that by the end of May, all Americans who want to get vaccines should be able to get them. And these vaccines have been a major breakthrough in science and technology. They've produced a class of vaccines that researchers believe can protect people from other illnesses and outbreaks. From Pfizer and Moderna, we have mRNA platforms, and Johnson & Johnson used viral vector technology. With new insights into the immune system, scientists are reprogramming the body to muster better defenses against viruses. For more on this promising new class of vaccines, we'll speak to Peter Loftus, healthcare reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Vaccines have been around for a couple hundred years, and for most of that time, they used sort of tried-and-true methods of making them, and in a lot of cases, that meant taking part of the virus or the pathogen that you want to try to protect against and using it in the vaccine itself to deliver that into the body to induce an immune response. And so those are still in use, but there have been efforts over the past few decades to find new ways to make vaccines. And the pandemic has really brought that out in the sense that, you know, even though some of these technologies were years in the making, this pandemic has sort of been their moment to actually deliver, if not for the very first time, then in the biggest way possible for that vaccine technology. And so, as you mentioned, the first couple of vaccines use this messenger RNA technology, and this Johnson & Johnson one uses a viral vector technology. And they're both newer ways of making vaccines, and they both involve essentially delivering the genetic code and genetic instructions that tell the body to do certain things to 
induce an immune response rather than deliver the actual virus into the body that you're trying to fight against. We've talked about the mRNA vaccines for a bit now, only because they were approved first from Pfizer and Moderna. Johnson & Johnson, as I mentioned, recently approved. They're using this viral vector technology. Tell us a little bit more about that. It's different from the old ways, as you were describing, but they still use a virus that they kind of readjust to help do this. So how how does the viral vector stuff work? That's a good point because um, I don't want to mislead people to think that there's no viral material in these viral vector vaccines. The the difference is that you're using a virus that has essentially nothing to do with the disease you're trying to combat. And the general concept for these viral vector vaccines is to take one harmless virus and to use it against a more deadly virus. And so in the case of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine and a couple others that are out there for COVID, like the one from AstraZeneca and University of Oxford, is to take something called an adenovirus, which is a relatively harmless virus that can cause common colds or conjunctivitis, and to tweak it in such a way so that if it's injected into your body, it's not going to cause disease. It's not going to cause the common cold. It's certainly not going to cause COVID, but it serves as sort of a carrier, and it's modified in a way so that it actually then carries DNA that tells the body's cells to make this spike protein that's found on the surface of the coronavirus. Finding that right virus was such an interesting part of this story. Johnson & Johnson decided they were going to go this route, viral vector technology, and they had to be on the hunt for the right virus because there was also concerns, you know, you're using viral material. What if you build up an immunity to that specific virus? Then could you build up an immunity to the vaccine itself? So they were on the hunt for a very specific one to use as well. That question of whether this viral vector or or this sort of carrier that makes up the vaccine is going to can pose an issue. And so in the past, there have been instances where that's been a problem. And I think it's not been entirely solved. And so in the past, the problem was that when they tried using one of these adenoviruses to be the sort of carrier in a vaccine, in people who had pre-existing immunity to that adenovirus, this common cold virus, it sort of interfered with the effectiveness of the vaccine against various diseases. And so what Johnson & Johnson had to do was sort of figure out, okay, well, we need to pick the right carrier, the, the right adenovirus, and, you know, ideally one that is just not that common out in the world so that not as many people have pre-existing immunity to it, but even the people who do have pre-existing immunity to it, maybe it's not going to be such a strong immune response against the carrier that would interfere with what the underlying vaccine is trying to do. Tell me a little bit more about Johnson & Johnson and the company, you know, how they got into this, because my understanding, I mean, obviously we know Johnson & Johnson for a myriad of products, but they're fairly new to the vaccine game, and they did achieve a little bit of success with an Ebola vaccine using this viral vector technology also. So how did that work out for them? And then obviously they transitioned into working on the COVID virus. They've got the well-known brands that you alluded to, Band-Aid, Baby Powder, and they've long had a a very strong prescription drug business. So drugs like Remicade uh, that, that treat people who are already sick. And and they're a major player, but they've not been a major player in vaccines. And so about 10 years ago, they decided they wanted to get into vaccines more. So they bought this Dutch biotechnology company called Crucell. And that's 
really where this viral vector technology came from that J&J is using. And so they kind of spent several years designing vaccines against various infectious diseases and then running them through the regular series of tests. So this would be things like Ebola and Zika. Then they were able to start testing their Ebola vaccine using this vector technology in Africa uh, after, I think, first after that, the really big outbreak in West Africa five or six years ago, and then more recently in the Congo, where there was another outbreak. And so they went through the whole series of studies for that vaccine and then eventually got a European Commission approval for it in the middle of last year. So now they do have this sort of platform that could work not only against COVID-19, but also against Ebola and then potentially additional infectious diseases. And they, in fact, they even have a vaccine in development for HIV, which has sort of been this notoriously difficult virus to target in the form of a vaccine. I mean, it's so interesting how far we've come, how much we've learned about the human body, so much so that, uh, you know, we're hacking the genetic software, you know, of the body to produce these things. You know, all these insights into the immune system that we've gained have led us to this stuff. So what's the promise for these things? Like, you know, what can we expect? I know they're working on vaccines for other diseases, gene therapies. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of promise with this. In a way, it's sort of the convergence of a couple different strains that have been going on in pharmaceutical research and academic research, and that is the genetic revolution on the one hand, but also immunology. Immunology is feeding into both vaccines to prevent disease, but also a whole new class of drugs to treat disease by, in some way, affecting the immune system. I mean, there are people that infectious disease experts who, who say that this is really a golden age of vaccinology, that these advances kind of signal that and think that it really shows that there's promise to really target a lot of other infectious diseases. In the case of a big emerging outbreak, like we've seen, to do it in a way that is really quick and can actually have an effect in actually stemming a pandemic while it's underway, you know, rather than just develop things on the normal timeline of many years that the pharmaceutical industry is, is used to. Yeah. And in the case of Johnson & Johnson, it's a one-shot protocol. If we can apply that to other things, one shot and you can develop some immunity, that's amazing. With the Pfizer and Moderna, those are two shots. But even still, after the first shot, they provide some level of immunity. But I know Johnson & Johnson went full bore with that single shot. I mean, that's just great stuff if we can really apply that to many other areas. Yeah, and I think it really could lend itself to helping things out, especially outside the U.S. and in lower-income countries where they might not have the healthcare infrastructure or even just the things like the specialized freezers that are needed to store some of these higher-end vaccines. And so that, that is another potential advantage, and we'll see how that unfolds in the coming months. Peter Loftus, healthcare reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. That's it for this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media, at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter, and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio, or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive has been engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition.